0: Right. So, yes, we're still in Exodus. So, I hope you've got your Bible still open at uh, page 71. I don't know about you, but I hate grumblers. Uh, in fact, I hate all negativity. I'm a, I'm a natural optimist. Uh, unfortunately, I'm married to one of the world's great pessimists. Yeah, it's true. Paul will more often than not see... The difficulties, the things that aren't going right, and and when he's in one of his you know negative moods, I I just want to put my hands over my ears and go la 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 la, you know, I just don't want to hear it. Which may say as much about me as about him, but many times because I know many times he's prepared to be much more honest and realistic about how things are, whereas I just want to hear the good news. But sometimes you know he is just negative. He is just let me give you just one small example. Um, Wind back sort of 20 years, our children were about 12, 10, and 8, and uh, we're setting off on holiday, okay, and we've all got up super early to catch the ferry across to France, Um, and as with every family, it's a mad scramble, and inevitably, we start off much later than we meant to, and Paul is watching the clock, you know, from the moment we get in the car, and we hit rush hour traffic as we're coming out of London, and he's already making annoying comments, such as, you know, I told you we should have left an hour earlier, um, and uh, we get onto the M, whatever it is, M20, and uh, halfway down the M20, he's again, you know, looking at his, making a big thing about looking at his watch, and he announces to the whole family, well, I mean, look, that that's it, isn't it? I mean, we've missed it. We missed it. We might as well turn around and go home. And of course, you know, it just dampens the whole atmosphere. And in fact, this became quite a pattern of behavior. So, you know, that for a number of years, whenever we set off on a journey together, you know, we could guarantee, you know, put the dampers on it. So the kids and I decided that, you know, between us, well, one of us would say, before he had a chance to, um, announce from the back of the car, well, that's it, isn't it? I mean, we've missed it. We might as well go home. <laughs> we think of grumbling as something other people do. You know, what we do, of course, is make justified complaints or, or constructive criticism but we don't grumble. We make ourselves the exception. But the reality is that most of us grumble, and some of us grumble most of the time. And here in these next few chapters in Exodus, we see how the people of Israel move with alarming speed from a people at one moment who make great proclamations of faith, and the next moment find everything and anything to complain about. I mean, even at one of the most incredible, incredibly miraculous events of all time, the parting of the Red Sea, we catch them grumbling, turning against God. You see, Pharaoh had finally released them from captivity. They're heading towards the Red Sea. But then, of course, Pharaoh changes his mind and sends all his horses and chariots and horsemen and troops after them. They'd been, the Israelites had been marching out boldly, we're told. But then they see the enemy advancing. And what do they do? They turn on Moses. In fact, they turn on God. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here in the desert to die? What have you done to us? Didn't we ask you to leave us alone? And as the Egyptian chariots come thundering down towards them, it looks as though all is lost. You know, they're backed up, helplessly backed up against the shores of the Red Sea with what looks like no means of escape. But then, as I said, one of the most amazing miracles in history occurs. A miracle, admittedly, that many uh, skeptical scholars have tried to dismiss over the years as just an overstated natural phenomenon. Uh, I don't know if you know this story, but I love it. The story of a liberal preacher visiting an African-American church. And as he talked about the crossing of the Red Sea, someone shouted from the back, "'Praise the Lord, taking all them children through the deep waters. What a miracle!' Sorry about the accent. Anyway, the preacher, who who didn't believe in miracles, was annoyed at this interruption. So rather condescendingly, he explained to the congregation that the Israelites were probably in marshland with an ebbing tide. uh, So they were simply wading through six inches of water. To which the same voice shouted from the back, praise the Lord, drowning all them Egyptians in six inches of water. (laughs) What a mighty miracle. And I hope you appreciated the re- in the reading, as we read that account, how vivid, how detailed, how electrifying, and how totally believable that miracle was. Because we know our God. We know who he is and what he does and how he does things. And that was one of the most miraculous and the most miraculous, too, because God just comes down and saves this complaining, doubting people. And they finally turn, and if we read on into the next chapter, chapter 15, we would have heard how they sing, turn and sing a magnificent song of praise to God once they're safe on the other side. Now, do you see how quickly the people of Israel move from praising to complaining, from trusting to doubting, and, and back again? And this is a pattern of behavior that we're going to see again and again as the children of Israel travel through the desert. While things are going well for them, they trust God. But as soon as the circumstances change, they turn on him. And this is their pattern. And and if we're not careful, this can become a pattern in our lives too. And before we start criticizing their behavior, we need to put a mirror up to ourselves you know, perhaps we sing of God's unfailing love here on a Sunday after Sunday, but three days later, or maybe even a couple of hours later, we're grumbling. We've turned on him. We're complaining. I mean, just think how easy it is for us to lose a sense of perspective, lose sight of God, forget what he's done for us and what he's meant for to us. Think how quickly we can turn from thanking God to blaming God. And the Israelites are in a hard place, a place where bitterness easily takes hold. They're in what I've heard described as the land between. The land between. You see, they've left Egypt. Moses has been commissioned by God to take them out of the land of slavery and into the land of milk and honey. That's the promise they're holding on to. Out of the land of slavery, into the land of promise. Do you know, seemingly no gap between them from Egypt to the land of their forefathers. But right now, You know, they're not in Egypt and they're not in Canaan. They're in the land between. And the language of the land between starts with things like if only or for now. You know, if only we hadn't started on this impossible journey. If only we hadn't trusted Moses, that man. If only we hadn't left Egypt. For now we're stuck in this endless desert. And we can use similar language. You know, if only I could afford to buy a, pr- a, ho- a house a flat if only I hadn't made that career choice for now you know I'm in this dead-end job for now I've got to live with my parents for now I'm stuck at home with the kids you know, it's where many of us find ourselves at some point or another in our lives may- maybe even today there's there's a discouragement uh, an obstacle a frustration about life and we look back with longing when times were simpler, and freer, more hopeful, more exciting. And we look ahead and we can't see how things are going to change. And we feel stuck in the land between. And life begins to go round in circles between what we're missing from our past and what we're still longing for in our future. And we can even feel a sort of hollowness, a dissatisfaction with what God's given us right now. And one of the characteristics of grumbling is that it often throws up idealistic and unrealistic alternatives. You see, back in chapter 2 in Exodus, the Israelites were groaning and crying out under the oppression of the Egyptians. Now, all of a sudden, they think of Egypt as a wonderful place to live. And they rail against God. Chapter 16, verse 3, There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But now you've brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly. Now, quite frankly, if I was God, at this point I would have said, fine, fine, that's what you want, I'll deposit you back in the land of casseroles, you know, there, go. But no, God's response is manna from heaven. I will rain down bread from heaven, he says, verse 4. Each morning the dew left behind, would hold thin flakes like frost, And the people called it manna, which basically means, uh, what is it? Because that's what the Hebrew sounded like. What is it? And they got up in the morning. There were these flakes of sort of snow-like stuff on the ground. What is it? And I love the detail, actually, that we're given over in the book of Numbers about this manna and about this story. Just turn over in your Bibles to the book of Numbers. It's a couple of books on. Page uh, 147, chapter 11 of, of Numbers just gives us rather more detail about uh, this time in Israel's history and about the manna in particular. Chapter 11, verse 7. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. Sounds disgusting, doesn't it? Anyway, the people went around gathering it and then ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a pot and made it into cakes. And it tasted like something made with olive oil. Okay, God provided this. Enough for breakfast, lunch, and dinner breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Breakfast, lunch, and you know, On and on, day after day. And yes, they became sick of it. And in this account in Numbers, we join the Israelites after they'd been eating this monotonous diet for over two years, and a riot is about to break out. Just look at verse 4. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost, you know, and also the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the garlic, sorry, the onions and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Can you just hear them? You know, we're sick of this. We're tired of this. We're totally fed up of this. This is God's provision for his people. Hundreds and thousands of them out in the desert. I mean, however did they expect they were going to survive, even for a day, let alone years out there? God had provided, and they just throw it back in his face. You see, the land between is fertile ground. Fertile ground for Complaint. And, you know, this is serious, because it's not just complaining about the menu, it's complaining about God. In longing for the days of Egypt to return, they're basically saying, we were better off as slaves, better off without you, God. So we need to guard our hearts in the land between, because there's something about the spirit of complaint that whispers, I'm sick of it. You know, I'm sick of this situation. In fact, I'm sick of you, God. God. You think nothing grows in the desert, but it's fertile land for complaint. And complaint arrives as an uninvited guest. You experience maybe another disappointing day and you go home and complaint has taken up residence in your home. And it's a hard thing to evict. It's very persistent and convincing and even sort of comforting in a strange sort of way because it feeds our ego, our sense of entitlement. So the land between is fertile ground for complaint. It's also fertile ground for meltdown, emotional meltdown. And we've seen how the children of Israel are responding, but just look, let's take a look at Moses for a moment. Verse 11 onwards of that same chapter, one of the most honest prayers you'll ever read. But as I read it, notice the number of times the words I and me occur. Moses asked the Lord, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their forefathers? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing at me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, put me to death right now." (laughs) I mean, he's in a bad way. He's in a bad way. Just look at that final plea. If this is how you're gonna treat me, Lord, put me to death right now. And uh, when I read out this to our daughter, Emily, she reminded me of the last night on our climb up Mount Kilimanjaro with the team from St. Mark's a number of years ago. And it was in the middle of the night on, that, on a final push up to the summit. And it was up a, just a horrific shale cliff. And I had suddenly been hit with just the most awful, dreadful altitude sickness. And it just, I can't tell you, it just sort of blasts your mind. And it makes makes you, well, it made me totally over-emotional. And at one point, apparently, she tells me, I just sat down on the ground and wailed, just leave me under this rock to die. (laughs) (laughs) But seriously, we've probably all experienced moments when we know we've come to the end of ourselves when we're completely worn out, crushed, exhausted, and all we can do is cry out, I can't do this anymore. And I wonder if you're aware of some of the signs of overload, signs of stress, signs that tell you you are coming to near to or have come already to the end of your own resources. Here are just eight of them, eight signs of possible overload. Number one, your passion fades. Now, everybody struggles with passion from time to time, but overload moves you into a place of sustained motivation loss. How, you know, however hard you try, you, you can't find that same passion for life or work or ministry or family. Number two, your main emotion is numbness. If you're healthy, you, you feel things. You experience highs and lows. When you're burned out, You can't feel things properly anymore. Number three, you become cynical. See, cynicism never finds a home in a healthy heart. So beware if you find your cynicism is advancing at a rapid rate. Number four, little things make you angry. It's not that burned out people feel zero emotion, but the emotions you feel are often directed in the wrong places little things can become disproportionately uh, important treating small things like they're big things is a sign something deeper is wrong number five nothing seems to satisfy or re-energize you you know even the people closest to you who used to be your source of enjoyment can often feel like it's just another drain on your emotions or the tasks that used to excite you just don't do that anymore When nobody and nothing re-energizes you, you know, they're not the problem. You are. Number six, your productivity drops. One sign of burnout is low productivity. When you're burning out, your heart messes with your head, and you lose that ability to think straight. And if you're working long hours but producing little of value, you might be burning out. Number seven, sleep and time off no longer refuel you. If you're just tired, you know, a good night's sleep or a week or two off will help most healthy people to bounce back with, you know, with fresh energy. If you're burning out, you could have a whole month off or more and not feel any different. And last one, number eight, you don't laugh much anymore. And, and this sounds such a small thing, but actually it's quite a big thing. If you're burning out, you, you don't laugh a lot. Nothing seems, nothing seems fun or funny. And at its worst, you can begin to resent people who are enjoying life. So the question for us all is, are we alert to, some, to these warning signs and others? You know, which of these I've just read out, which of these maybe do we maybe even need to address right now? And like the warning lights on a dashboard uh, that Paul tells me I take absolutely no notice of whatsoever. You know, do we notice when the red light goes on and then starts flashing at us, warning us there's a problem. And at those times, have we learned how to pour out our hearts to God without turning it into a self-pitying rant or a tirade against him? Have we learned how to voice our confusion and disappointment to God, you know, not pulling away from him, but pressing in, looking to him for the strength we need? Have we learned those lessons? Are we learning them? Because the land between is also fertile ground for God's provision. God responds to Moses' prayer and he provides helpers, leaders alongside Moses to support him. Seventy mini Moses. Just look at what God says to Moses in verse 16. Bring me 70 of Israel's elders to the tent of meeting. And on in verse 17, and I will come down and speak with you there. And I will take of the spirit that is on you, on Moses, and put the spirit on them. And they will help you carry the burden of the people so that you won't have to carry it alone. You see, God knew exactly what Moses needed. And we today dare to say, what if he will provide like that for me, for us? What if he is kind and gracious and understanding to me? In my situation, what might provision look like if I pray a prayer like that and just open up my hands and wait expectantly for him to answer? What might it look like for me? Maybe it would be a capacity for contentment. Maybe the support of a friend, yes. Maybe a renewed patience with my spouse or my children or my work colleagues. Maybe the strength simply to hold on, to keep going. The faith to believe. Because the land between is fertile ground for God's provision, if only we look for it. And fourthly, it's fertile ground for God's discipline. There's one thing to call out to God in pain and confusion. It's another thing to call out in anger against him. And the children of Israel are about to see the difference. You see, they've complained against God for his lack of provision, his lack of care. They've behaved like petulant children. You know, we want meat, we want meat. It reminded me of one Christmas when my gorgeous little niece, who must have been about four years old at the time, stood in the middle of the sitting room with a mound of open toys all around her and simply wailed, not enough presents, not enough presents. And poor love, she's now 18, and each Christmas since then one of us has reenacted her little tantrum, (laughs) poor thing. But here, the Israelites are also having a mini tantrum, and God answers them but not without an edge, verse 18. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed, if only we had meat to eat. We were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or two or five or ten or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it because you have rejected the Lord. And what does God do? He sends a massive quail migration. Just look across at verse 31. Now a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It brought them down all around the camp to about three feet above the ground, as far as the day's walk in any direction. I mean, it must have been the most extraordinary sight. Thousands upon thousands of birds flying in low. I mean, I can just imagine, you could just knock them out of the air with a cricket bat. And we're told in this story, each person gathered a great armload of birds and then laid them out to dry. But then disaster strikes. While the meat was still between their teeth, and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people, and he struck them with a severe plague. After all God's provision, extraordinary provision for this ungrateful people, why does he suddenly lose patience with them at this point? God sent a wasting plague, and people died, which says two things to us. The discipline of God is not an easy one to understand. It never will be. And secondly, this is a great mealtime story for any children who won't eat their lunch you know, darling, if you've got a problem with your broccoli, you know, just listen to a little story from the Bible. God's discipline is always about inflicting pain for redemptive purposes. It's not just causing pain for pain's sake. It's causing pain to rescue something. It's to rescue us from ourselves, from the ways we turn away from him, from our hardness of heart. God's discipline comes from the Father's heart, and its aim is always to return our hearts to him. Now, what's been our experience, I wonder, when we felt the Lord's discipline? Have we turned Father away, or have we turned back to him? And lastly and most important, the land between is fertile ground for transformational growth. It's one of the best soils we'll ever be in to learn what it means to trust our Heavenly Father. And I think that's what God is whispering throughout this story and throughout our stories. I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me. And I wonder what, in what different ways and at different times you've heard that whisper in your ear. I want you to trust me. At this point where you can't see, you don't understand, you don't know what's going on, you feel this is harsh, you hate what's happening, Will you trust me? Will you trust me? Because the land between is fertile soil for transformational growth. And it's in that space in the desert that we learn lessons of faith that we'll never learn in the same way when we're in the land of milk and honey. But of course, this doesn't happen automatically. We, we say things like, you know, time heals, but it doesn't always. Some people simply get more bitter and resentful in the land between. And when we travel through the land between, our hearts are in danger. We need to guard our hearts. Because there are choices of the heart that have to be made in this land that will determine who we are, who we will become in the future. See, the desert is the best greenhouse for transformational growth. But it's also a place where faith can go to die. And we have that choice. We make that choice. You see, the land between is the very place that we hate. It's the place where God can do, though, some of the richest, deepest work. If only we'll let him. If only we'll allow him. If we will keep trusting him. So shall we stand? And we're going to sing a song that allows us to just make our response to God. That... That decision to trust him, to follow him. Because we have to realise that the land between is, is is the whole of our Christian life. It's not just the hard bits, it's the whole of our Christian life here on earth. It's the life of faith that we're living. And it involves all the ups and downs that we encounter. All the ups and downs. And the land between for all of us is fertile ground for both the positive and the negative in our lives to grow. And we make the choices day by day, either the negative or the positive, that fertile ground that leads, us to, compl- leads to complaint, or that fertile ground that leads to praise and trust and commitment. The fertile ground that can, yeah, pull us down with those tough things, there's confusions. There's disappointment. There's anxiety. And we can either be pulled down, and we can blame God, and we can rant and rave at Him, or we can say, "No, no, I choose to dig deep, and to stay with You, God, and to trust You more." Ferti- the land between is fertile, God, land, for ground for God's provision. If only we will look for it, and say to Him, "It may not be what I choose." But if it's what you choose, Lord, I I stay with it. The land between is fertile ground for God's discipline. And again, what will we do with that discipline? Will Will we say, no, I'm not having any of this? Will we turn away? Or will we say, no, I choose to learn these lessons of faith. I choose to learn them. And the land between is fertile ground for transformational growth. Saying yes, Lord, to our yes to Him in good times and in bad, saying our yes to Him. So let's do that as we sing this song. And maybe even as we're singing it, we might want to be bringing things to Him that have, to God, that have been maybe hard for us to understand over these past weeks, maybe months, maybe years. But to choose to say our yes to Him. To say, yes, I choose to trust you, to hold on to you, to follow you.